Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shark Brain, the podcast about creativity, finding yourself, finding the truth, and just generally living the life of an artist, musician, entertainer, any number of those things. On the show, I like to explore not only how to make it in the business, quote unquote, give me a break, but also how to reconcile the business with your soul, which to me is a lot more important. Not a lot of people are touching on that. Not a lot of people are trying to figure out how to keep your sanity in light of all this. But you know, we're going to give it a shot. This week on the program, we've got Garrison Starr, who is a dear friend of mine. I've toured with her. I've sang songs with her. I've recorded with her. She's a great person to know. She's a seeker. And she's not afraid to be vulnerable and open up her guts. And let us take a look in there. We had a great conversation. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk about some shows coming up. October 6th at the Hotel Cafe. We have a full band show. That's going to be at 9.30. So look up at hotelcafe.com for more information on tickets and that sort of a thing. Or go to jakenewton.com. I'll have a link to it there. We are rapidly approaching fall. We are leaning into it. We are pushing into winter. But before we get to winter, we get to my favorite season. There's something about it. There's something about the end of burning hot days. I like sleeping in the cold, and it's just the perfect, perfect temperature for me. There's something about hearing the roar of a football game blocks away and the blinding lights over in the corner. There's something about seeing all the harvest from the punishing summer, finally enjoying the fruits of that. But then there's also something about letting go. I think it's very similar to the first time you notice your parents or your grandparents. Gray hair. The signs of age may be in yourself. The idea that time waits for no man. That it moves forward ineffably. Always. I don't know. Try not to get too heavy about it. I have a tendency to lean into the sad. I love the sad. Me and the sad, we're, we're bosom buddies. But much like bosom buddies or best friends or good old pals, sometimes in an effort to avoid change, we don't do what's best for us. Sometimes the sad says to me, hey, you know what? Happiness is for the feeble-minded. Fulfillment is for those who don't know the truth, who haven't caught on, who haven't got the memo that time and tide inevitably will erode at us and that we are on one spinning wheel, moving ever closer towards death. And like sand through the hourglass of our lives, everything is but a wisp, dust in the wind, etc., and infinitum. The sad, the sad, the sad. Hey, I got a great idea. Let's drink alone and watch sad movies and think about our unfulfilled destinies. Because that's comfortable. Believe it or not, a person can get comfortable there. And you can write from that. You can make an entire record. You can make an entire lifetime of records about the sad. When you realize that there are songs about everything, from the Loch Ness Monster to Irish civil injustice in 1916 to uh, holding someone's hand, there is an entire world and an entire world of expression to express said world. It's like somebody gave you a box of 120 Crayola And you decided to go with Burnt Sienna and Brick Red. And those were going to be the two colors from which you drew pictures. 
is completely limiting. And I worry about that in our culture. I worry about it in myself. I can literally choose every bit of information that goes into my head and filter it in such a way that I am never challenged, or if I find it challenging, I can completely cut it out of my life. I can pick 900 different channels of cable. As far as the news goes that gets to me, I can find any number of avenues that fits more closely of my personal point of view, my worldview. Algorithmically, I can choose whatever music I like based on my previous preferences, movies I like based on those which I have watched before. Now, granted, all this stuff is incredibly convenient, and I'm not really knocking the fact that people have been very creative and inventive in getting these technologies to the fore for us to be able to enjoy. However, I think that there is an extreme danger to entomb yourself in a cocoon of preference. You're never actually challenged in a worldview that you can block a friend if you don't like his political views on Facebook, and that they're so polarizing because no one ever has to walk in another person's shoes. No one has to stare somebody in the face and say the things that they so vitriolically spew out onto the keyboard or with their thumbs and their phones. Benjamin Franklin wrote the entirety of his work without the use of Wikipedia. William Shakespeare who I still contend to be a human, whether or not you believe him to be Sir Francis Bacon or William Shakespeare himself. There's a whole conspiracy theory realm there that I'm not even going to go into right now. Suffice it to say, the plays exist. They're by, in all likelihood, one man. And they are gorgeous and amazing. And then without the aid of cutting yourself off from everything else, you have to listen. My grandfather used to tell a story living in Kansas, of what they would do on Friday nights. It would be one particular neighbor's house that they'd all go to, and they'd gather around, and they'd play pinochle. And they'd talk about the week, and they'd talk about what they read in the newspapers, and they would stare at each other in the face. Entire families of people all playing together and living life together. I think we're unaware of the passage of time. I think as we get further and further away from what life feels like, what heartbeats feel like, and what eyes feel like, and what hurting someone's feelings feels like, and what making someone joyful feels like, and what what pain and what pleasure feel like, the farther and farther we get away from that to just being mildly pleased and not bored, the farther and farther away we get from the center of truth within us the beauty and the delicacy that has to be wrenched out of us slowly. Not like not like finding a huge swath of gold ore, but having to pound it out of the dirt. Having to beat it out slowly. That stuff takes time that you cannot rush. Simply cannot rush. I'm craving that. I'm craving more of that. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to go on a digital cleanse. Maybe I'm going to eat more cruciferous vegetables. Maybe I'm going to give up Netflix. I don't know. Uh, But uh, something's got to change for me personally. You can live a life however you want. Live and let live. Or as Paul McCartney would like to say, live and let die. Anyway, this conversation that I had with Garrison Starr was a wonderful one. I love doing this show. It's phenomenal to sit down and to talk with a friend uninterrupted, For an hour and a half, it's one of the best things that you can do for yourself. You don't necessarily have to have a podcast. Hey, call up a friend, go drink coffee with them, and stare at their face, 
And the first person to pick up a phone and to check their status owes the other person $50. What do you say? Want to take that challenge? Anyway, Garrison Starr. Show you the, uh, oh, I can't wait. the whole thing. Yeah, I, I can't wait. It cut together. It's uh, yeah, it's it's fun. The great thing about it is that, I mean, you know this because you, you know you and I have talked about going through therapy and doing that sort of thing. Oh yeah. And 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 approaching conversations once you've gone through therapy kind of takes on a different color and a different pallor. Well, and, it's a language that you now speak. Yeah. Or not. Yeah. Or, no, and or it's not. very apparent when you're in a conversation with someone who doesn't have that. That self-help language. It's definitely a, a vocabulary all mm-hmm. its own, you know? Well, being able to do that and then in concurrence with this yeah. is great because then you can actually get into the long-form conversation that we don't do anymore, you know, as people. Yeah. No, know? I think it's great. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, that's got a little reverb on it. Did we start? Or if we started? We're oh, starting. Yes. This, is, this is how loose it is. Oh, I love it. This is basically an hour and a half of this or more like an hour. Because, I love it. Yeah. That's, it's cool. So, uh, in the studio... We're not in the studio. In the Shark Brain Labs, we have like Garrison Star. Hello, world. Hello, world. There I'm in the is. Shark Brain Labs. She's in the Shark Brain Labs. We I were... love that you call it a lab. Yeah. A laboratory. Laboratory. Because that's Just... what it is. A laboratory. We are exploring <laughs> the inner recesses of the human mind. That's wonderful. Yeah. So... You've been going, going, going. We were just talking about this in the other room. You've been moving, moving, moving. I've been moving. Yeah. What? Just outline it real quick again. I know you just told me, but... Uh... Well, no, I'm just like, I am just hustling around, you know, just making music all the time. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's funny because I, I'm, well, I guess not to jump off to the subject too quick, um, to answer your question lately, um, I've been doing some touring uh, here and there, just, you know, to pay bills, to be honest. It, touring right now is not something I'm in love with doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love performing, but it's it's hard right now, you yeah. know, to, to be on the road. Um so I love performing, but I don't like being on the road like I used to. It mm. used to be a lifestyle, and now it's like, oh, but I really like my life at home with my friends and my and my uh, girlfriend. And you know, I just don't. I mean, I just I like being at home. It's a weird thing. I used to never feel that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> doesn't it, doesn't it certain like at certain points feel like a badge of honor to go like, no, I like the road, like being shiftless. I wake up in a different place all the time, uh, and then yeah, it used to be. And then you just sort of wake up and something snaps, like you know, a, some vertebrae in their back, and everything is adjusted from then on. Well, you know, it's like I feel like I've gotten to this point where I just I just don't like. The thing that's hard for me about the business of music is the part where you have to be engaged all the time. You have to be thinking all the time about how you can advance yourself and what can you do and everybody's doing this and I got to get a new account on fucking fumblybumbo.com, you know, profile. I got to have another profile. And it's like, you know, I just got to this place where I'm like, fuck that. Yeah. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm so tired. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Like... What what are the things that I love about my life in music? Like, what are the things I love about being an artist? I will tell you, performing and writing music, making, creating the stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that's what I love to do more than anything. So, like, I've been touring a little, but also really, like, this past year, and we've talked about this on a personal level, I just am writing all the time, collaborating, mm-hmm. you know, co-writing and also writing for myself, throwing songs out there for music. And, you know, I mean, for TV and film and for other artists, just, you know, making songs, learning Mm -hmm. about Pro Tools, like learning how to be more self-sufficient and growing as a businesswoman, you know, like 
I'm thinking about the bigger picture of my career now and my life now in a way that I didn't like 10, 15 years ago when I was younger because I just, you know, I came up in the music business at a different time where you sort of had handlers and, you know, you had a quote unquote team of people that were quote unquote taking care of you. Yeah. So you really, you know, for me, I just passed everything off. You know, it's like I didn't really see the value in in having my finger on everything because I just trusted that it would be taken care of. And yeah. that's that was one hard lesson. I mean, that's a hard life lesson to have to learn the hard mm. way. You know what I mean? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it reminds so. me of Rocky Five when he gave all his money to this accountant, and it turns out to be bad. It's oh my the, god! The fall from grace. It's- Do you know that? Like, I'm really not that versed in Rocky Five. Rocky Four, I kind of stopped there because it was so good, yeah. and I really go back to Rocky Four you know, more than any of the other ones. Do you think that's you know I across think, the board? Probably. I true? think that you you hit the nail on the head is when it comes to the canon of Rocky films. Rocky Four with Ivan Drago, you kind of hit it. It was it, in the middle of the cold where it was the perfect spot. But for dude, that. yeah, it was like his training in. Russia and stuff, uh, and like lifting just, up that big with everybody sitting in the back uh, of that, that in the wagon, in the wagon, and, and then doing up. the sit-ups from oh, like yeah. hanging from the from in the a barn and from the in, uh, what do you call it loft? He's yeah. like doing the yeah, doing it's the whole great. thing. That's in the my middle favorite. of the Urals, you know, like then, outside of St. Petersburg. And then what's her face? The wife shows Talia up. Talia Shire. Oh, yeah. she just shows up. Yeah, how she got there, we don't know. We but don't she's know. Surprised in the middle of the Cold War, just like a girl from Philly just happens to like roll through, going like, I think I'm looking for my boxing husband. Right in the snow. In the snow. How'd she get there? You, I'm looking for the one Italian dude within a 500-mile radius. Have <laughs> yeah. you seen him? I guess they assumed nobody would really want to delve into that Probably. question, but I'm curious about it. Well, it was all during that uh, that montage with Ivan Drago on all the machines, you know? Yeah, right? oh my God. Dolph Lundgren, man. It's pretty hot. It's pretty hot. I, I have to say. Lot, they use a lot of grease in those movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could somebody get the baby oil over here? Yeah, just, you need more, yeah we need more He's glisten. drying out. We need more glisten. His boobs are drying out. <laughs> His pectorals. So... You have been in the business from since before, from when it was a business and before it was like the turned into the Wild West, or should we say the apocalypse? Yeah, you know, yeah, for that real. was I think that yeah, Napster was the atom, the dirty bomb that went off. Yeah, and then slowly everybody's kind of gotten poisoned. But you were doing, you've been doing it for. Fifteen? Yeah, it's been almost. Well, it's between fifteen and twenty years. Fifteen to be and fair. twenty years. Yeah. So when you started out, you actually you you were in the mode where there was the big guy in the limousine chomping on the cigar that said you are going to be a star. I mean, for all intents and purposes, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you it was where they would still wine and dine you, and yeah. there were lunches and parties and town cars that took you to the airport and yeah. You well, know. Let's go back a bit before <laughs> that. You were you were born in were you born in Mississippi? Well, I was born in Memphis. Okay, but the town I grew up in, Hernando, Mississippi is like 20 minutes south of Memphis. So I grew up in that Memphis area. Mm -hmm. I mean, I lived in a small town in Mississippi, but I went to school in Memphis and all that stuff. So Mm -hmm. I kind of, I grew up in that general area, but I was officially born in Memphis. Okay. Baptist Memorial Hospital. Oh, there it is. There it is. So, but in the South, but living in the South and and coming up with the, uh, living in a, in a deep Christian household? Yes, very and fundamentalist Christian within a, Within a Christian environs of the South itself? Yes. Because you're not in the weird part of the South. You're not in like New Orleans part of the South where it's like, you know, he's a tranny who also likes to blow <laughs> right. glass at night. You yeah, know? And, I'm not in the New Orleans part of the South where people are Catholic and don't really give a shit. Like, yeah. I grew up in the place where people gave a lot of shits. Yeah, and the buckle of the Bible belt, the yes. heat from that can really create some great guilt. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. The mm. guilt thing has really been the hardest thing to get out from under the guilt and shame i think are the the dingleberries yeah on the uh, <laughs> on the proverbial ass 
uh, of, know, of, of your subconscious, me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of yeah. my subconscious that I have really had a hard time shaking off. Absolutely sympathize with that. So you grew up there, and then did you go to college? Like you got to the point when did you start making music? When did you start wanting to do that? Ever since I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, my mom put me in piano lessons when I was six, and you know, my mom and I, my mom really wanted to she really wanted me to be girly you know it always frustrated her that i was a tomboy and honestly i probably became more of a well i don't know i think i've been who i am since i was little but but you know it 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 helps you to rebel when you've got a parent who's just up your ass in the opposite way you Mm -hmm. know really pushing you to be somebody or do something you don't want to do or be somebody you don't want to be you Mm -hmm. know and and, and you know, I say all this with great love because I have a lot of respect and love for my mom. She's wonderful, and she's a great person. Um, but she had a mother who was very controlling, and, you know, she sort of never could get out from under that, you know, never really get out from under her mom's, you know, wishes and sort of clawings, you mm-hmm. know, after her. She didn't have the courage to really get out from under that, you know, and I did. So I think that kind of rubbed my mom the wrong way from when I was a kid because, I asked questions and I said no and I said why and mm-hmm. no, I don't know about that. You know, I questioned her all the time and she never questioned, you know. So I think to her it was irritating, like, because I said so, you know, whatever. Yeah. Do you think that because she thought that she was doing the right thing by not questioning her mother? Probably. and Or that in the jealousy from seeing you be able to live your own life was something that even spurred her on even further? I think, yeah, yeah. because later on, like, as I got older, I think my mom did tell me once she didn't say she was jealous of me she said she was she envied me or was really proud of me yeah it was something it wasn't like a straightforward thing but it was like a pat on the back of like you know what you you i really wish i was more like you yeah. in this way you know which was actually a nice thing to hear mm-hmm. you know and it, and it made me sad at the same time yeah um but anyway my mom put me in piano when i was six and i just didn't get it like the theory i wasn't interested in it like i didn't Mm-hmm. I didn't get it. I looked at the piano and I'm like, this is so confusing. I hate it. You yeah. know? So I quit doing that and then I started playing guitar. Looking back on it, I, I see how valuable it would be to have that piano knowledge, to have the theory knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, But it's like that language thing. As you become more ingratiated in the music community and you become you know, a better writer and a better musician, you know, and you are around people who speak that language, you start to pick it up. It's like, I'm starting to pick up the theory and understand what it means. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, with practical application and music, you know, it's like being around people like Justin Glasgow, you know, I mean, he's just so talented and has such a wealth of knowledge about music. It's like, it always blows my mind that he can sit down and go, okay, yeah, so it's the C sharp minor and these are the the notes and the chord. So, and I know it sounds stupid, but when he sits down to play a part, like he, it's, he knows what to play because he knows what notes are in a chord. Yeah. There's, there's, I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I'd have to think about it for five minutes per chord in Mm -hmm. order to tell you, I'd be like, every good bird does F. Mm-hmm. Every good, you know, it's just like whatever. So now I'm starting to see, like, oh God, it'd be so cool if I had, you know, if I had that theory knowledge, because then I would just know what to play, and I wouldn't be struggling on the piano, plinking around, getting irritated mm-hmm. because I have to memorize it. I have to memorize what I hear. That's yeah. how I play. Yeah. Well, I think in a lot of ways you can you can take m- musical instruments and their personalities or what they actually offer to the expression of the form itself and apply it to other things. What I like to do is I like to say it in in writing implements. Like, if I'm sitting down at a piano, a piano is the most universal thing. It's just something that everybody can really do at a certain point or what communicates to everyone else. So it is a typewriter, right? Okay. Right. A piano is a typewriter. Well, a guitar 
is a calligraphic pen. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's very specific. If you if, when you start getting your own style on the guitar, you really don't have to try that hard to that's sort right. of just have your own signature, literally right. and figuratively. Well, that's right. Yeah. And to me, that was the other thing I was going to say. Was to me the like I sat down to play the piano and it was a struggle because I had to know all this stuff in order to play it. Like yeah. I kind of had to have all this information before I could just play. With the guitar, like I sat down to play and I was like, oh, awesome. This is great. Oh, I just did this. Sounds amazing. What yeah. is this? I love it. You know, immediate, it just, immediate results. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were immediate gratifying results. Mm-hmm. And I, I just could sort of play and, you know, and I. And how old were you around this time? 12. 12. Mm-hmm. Okay. 12 or 13. I was at camp one summer in Mississippi. I would go every summer to Strong River Camp and Farm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to love it. I used to love going, and there was a dude. That, and the thing at Strong River was they had international counselors. Mm-hmm. So there was a dude from New Zealand who was teaching guitar lessons. And one day I just wandered over, and then he taught me how to play "Blown in the Wind." I learned A, E, and D; those were my first three chords. Oh wow! Yeah, so I learned how to play "Blown in the Wind," and then I just ran off and just started learning every song I could, like playing those three chords. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> And that's how I learned how to play. Then I would stumble upon new chords. I would make shapes, and they would sound good. And I would mm-hmm. later find out that was a C, or oh, this is an F, or some form of an F. Or yeah, know? some augmented minor, yeah. like with an eleventh on it. Yeah, that just sounds <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah, it's got those names that exactly. the, the dudes in guitar magazines have names for. But uh, yeah, it's wonderful. So you got to that point, and you're you're started going through high school. Did you have the identity of the singer songwriter in high mm-hmm. school? That's that was the thing that you grabbed and latched onto. Yeah, that, that was early. I was always in some sort of ensemble or I was playing my songs for people or people would be like, play that Indigo Girl song or mm-hmm. play this R.E.M. song. And I would just like learn how to play songs people liked. And, you know, I was kind of, I was always accepted for that. Yeah. I and mean, that was the thing. Like anytime I would sing and play, I would be, you know, I would get good attention, you yeah. know, and that was something people always wanted from me. Play mm-hmm. a song. Yeah. Play the song. Do this thing. That was know, dance thing. for us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in, in high school, it's confusing as hell and you have no idea who you are or what you want to do. As long as if you got an in, yeah. like the guitar, that's one great thing too that yeah. we should mention again is there's not a lot of pianos sitting around campfires. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they're using them for Hold firewood. Hold on, you guys. I got to go get my... <laughs> I got to go get my upright, my spinet piano. Hold on a second, guys. I'll be right back. Okay. Someone come and help. Heavy. Hey, man. Yeah, that's no problem. I can play you guys some songs, but I'm just going to need the whole class to go with me. <laughs> can we can we bring <laughs> the campfire up, into the living room? Pick up my spinet piano mm-hmm. and I'll bring it down to campus. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then from there, did did you end up going to college? You know, I did. I went to Ole Miss for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And it was you know, I mean, it was I can't say that the whole experience was negative because, you know, a lot of my friends went there and that's why I went there and I was in a sorority, mm-hmm. a good sorority on campus and so I was in the right circles and all that stuff. And I was accepted and everybody liked me until they found out I was gay. And then that was a whole nother thing. That was a big thing. Yeah. But that's really why I left school. Honestly. I I mean, I didn't want to go to school. I only went to school for the social aspect of it. I didn't want to go. Like I wouldn't, I mean, I didn't give a shit about college, you know, just like I didn't give a shit about high school. It's just not, I wasn't interested in any of that. You know, it's like, I'm a pretty intelligent person, and I would study for my test 10 minutes before I would take the test, and I'd make a C plus or a B minus, so who cares? Yeah. I didn't really feel like I needed to really invest in studying because mm-hmm. I wasn't interested. Yeah. I'm like, you know, well, if I ever want to know about Columbus, I'll just ask somebody. You know what I mean? Why, you know yeah. what I mean? Who cares? I just yeah. wasn't. I was always writing poetry or stories, 
you know, I don't know. I was more interested in socializing and talking to people and getting to know people and understanding what things were about. Not hmm. not necessarily like what happened in 1492, but but why did it happen and what do you all feel about it? I don't know. I just always love to talk about things and, and talk to people about their experiences. That's what I was really interested in. And I went to a private Christian school, so it's like... That wasn't, you know, nobody was really wearing their heart on their sleeve around there. You know, no, looking really. back on it, it's, and you grew up. You're, I mean, your dad's a preacher, right? Oh yeah. yeah. So you know, you grow. I would imagine, like as a preacher's kid, yeah. I mean, there's quite a level of a subterfuge you have to put yourself through uh, in order to kind of manage people's expectations or mm-hmm. be able to uh, to circumvent any knock down, drag out, huge discussion about certain things because there is a, a huge denial of self or of base needs or, you know, it's, let's not look at the elephant in the room because in, while striving to be holy, they divorce themselves from being uh, in a human body and the human body wants to do certain things that aren't necessarily right. They, they have that feeling of selfishness, that sense of survival, which yeah. is greed, which can manifest itself into greed, that need to procreate, which is, you know, always coursing through you, that is, you know, <laughs> like lust and all. So in doing all those things, you can really create a weird fissure, dividing line in yourself. And some people ride it out and then they, you know, wake up at one day at 55 years old with a huge tumor the size of, you know, a, a watermelon in their gut or they have a psychotic break and end up doing what a lot of these guys end up doing which is like picking up trannies in the middle of like downtown denver and then running a church full of five thousand people like doing the two it's like figuring out somewhere in the middle where we don't have to ask sex workers to do things but that's a good point too like it's like you know um when i was growing up i was so aware of the fact that i was supposed to in air quotes, of course. Uh-huh. I was supposed to either be this or that. Like, mm. it was, you know, everything was so black and white. Like, I was either supposed to be the girl who was girly and going to get married to a man and have kids, or I was going to be this terrible person who followed her lustful, evil desires of whatever they might be and drink and smoke or whatever was seen as a bad thing to be doing and go to hell. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, but I, but you know, literally, like I looked at those two options as a kid and was like, but I'm not either one of those things. Like yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle. Like I don't. I mean, I dated guys, but I was not. I mean, I wasn't fully committed to that. Mm-hmm. But I also like never even took a drink until I was 21. I just, you know what I mean? Like I just didn't have. I don't know. I was just kind of. I felt like I was a pretty normal kid. Yeah. But in my circumstance, I mean, in my. Uh, environment, I was very abnormal and was very acutely aware of that in my own mind. Mm-hmm. Like when I would have thoughts, like it was always like, well, I shouldn't be thinking this. I know I shouldn't be thinking this because I hear everybody talking around me and it's just clear that I can't think this. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's probably, just, these are thoughts about being, being gay and yeah, having feelings towards women. Yeah. Yeah. Having feelings towards women and also like having like wanting, I mean, and this is, this is probably going to sound super un PC, but I'm just being honest. I mean, my parents are very conservative. I grew up in a very white environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a, a, a friend at school who was black. And, you know, when we were young, when I was in the seventh grade or so, like it, you know, as it would, as you would expect, it would come up, you know, at one point she wanted me to spend the night on the weekend, like, cause we were good friends mm-hmm. and I couldn't, I couldn't go because yeah. she was black. Your parents said this? Yeah. I couldn't go. It was just foreign to them. They didn't understand it. Huh. it you know, it was mostly probably my mom just didn't understand was just like no I just don't think that's a good idea and it's like but I don't understand that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so as a kid it's like yeah. you know not only realizing that I had feelings for women but also that I had friends who might be gay and I have friends who are black and 
You know what I mean? Like, I have want to play music in the bars and, yeah. you know, like some people I know smoke cigarettes and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, just things like simple things like that, that, you know, <laughs> that are just human life things that yeah. because it was so conservative mm-hmm. where I grew up and then, you know, the, the, again, like the environment I was in was just so conservative. It just, you know, it's like when I look back at it now and think about it now, I have a lot of compassion for myself and for all those people that I was with because it's like, good Lord, what kind of pressure are we living under here that we're beating ourselves up for having a drink or mm-hmm. like, for you know, whatever. It's, it's incredibly just, hard. It's listen, it's like, uh, yeah, you can have a psychotic episode from the whole dang thing. And, I grew yeah. up, I grew up, you know, obviously a pastor's kid twice over. And while my parents were really accepting of, of, me and or just just of anything they would forgive anything but it's the having to ask for the forgiveness of the thing that was hard or even even thinking that it was wrong but it wasn't necessarily even them it was the culture within which we were you know i was a pastor's kid which means i was i was a chip off the old block when it came to my dad i was the mini spiritual leader so i was actually telling somebody about this today i would get phone calls that people would call asking for relationship advice or emotional advice adults and they would my dad and i had very similar voices and i would say i would say hello and they would start talking and then they'd get about a 20 or 30 seconds in and i'd say you have jake you don't have bruce my dad and then he would say oh well, that's okay. And they'd keep going. No way. Yeah. It happened on a more than one occasion. And oh I, I would find out things about my friends from their parents. Like, you know, oh, well, so-and-so's having a hard time in school and she has a pregnancy scare. And I'm going, oh my I God. don't need to know this. So, and then just as oh much just as much pressure of trying to sort their lives out was, right. was the pressure put on me to live a perfect life. And so, or yeah. to be to be an example. And I, of course, led it for a long time. I went through a weird period of time where I was hyper-conservative. In right. like junior but, high, but your heart wasn't in it, probably. Well, no, it was. It was scared. It was. Mm-hmm. My, I took my neurosis and I funneled it into like a weird kind of uh, staunch conservatism. Like my friends were starting to listen to uh, Nirvana and, and bad music, quote yeah, unquote. Right. And I really, I, for, I had a weird period. You wouldn't even recognize me. Where I was just. I actually screamed at my friends. I'm just worried about my friends going to hell in a handbasket. Dude, I had the same experience one time. People were talking about gay people and stuff, and I felt so self-conscious that I started like saying, you know, how it was wrong and that's gross and all this. And one of my friends like looked at me and was like, "Why are you saying all that stuff? Like that's so rude. Like I can't believe you think that." Like my friend who wasn't gay calling me out. Like yeah. and, and my friend who's like a super strong Christian or whatever, whatever that means. But she's calling me out in front of all these people, you know, and I'm like, and I'm, you know what I mean? mean like yeah. it, it's such a i mean so i completely get that it's like it wasn't just like overcompensating a yeah you know, just you're just like i don't want them to think that's so gross yeah uh, you know yeah and, <laughs> and to hate the, the the part of yourself which i think a lot of people say like you know whenever strong hate occurs it's just a piece of yourself that you you hate about yourself that you kind of ascribe to other people yeah it's very interesting so you came out of high school the singer songwriter chick and you went mm-hmm. to college and we kind of brushed over this earlier, but you you went and you were a part of a sorority, and you got kicked you got kicked out of the sorority when they found out that you were gay. Well, for all I mean, just I mean that's essentially what happened. My yeah. parents really freaked out. It was a terrible situation, honestly. That and I've never really talked about it that much. Just I mean I don't know. I guess when it was closer to the event, like it was embarrassing for. I mean, it was a humiliating situation. Yeah. It was really embarrassing for everybody involved and. You know, I'm sure, well, I don't know what my parents think in retrospect, but they probably don't like to think about it. But I, you know, long and short, like I had been dating this girl and this was the first real female relationship I had 
was it was first of all the real the the first real adult relationship I'd ever been in in the first real sexual relationship I've ever been in and it was a woman and it was in college mm-hmm. right so like I am a late bloomer in so many ways because I was so afraid of my sexuality and my feelings around all that when I was younger because I mean I just felt stressed about it like you know so I just didn't want to deal with it because I'm mm-hmm. like well I don't know what to do and that just sounds so intimidating I mean you know, it just was foreign to me. It was it's something you, it was almost like it was so taboo and it was so like it, the fear of God was put in you around it that it just, you know, I was just, I kind of almost was just like, well, that's unappealing. I yeah. don't know what that is, but it's not, I can't deal with that right now. Yeah. So I got to college and, you know, ended up getting into this relationship and she was engaged to this man to be married and we were seeing each other and, you know, it was just this crazy, she was trying to put up, you know, we're trying to put up this front with all of our friends, like, you know, she's engaged. I mean, yeah. it was just like, you know, so we had this whole thing going on and, uh, and of course, like, it's a close community. People found out, like, I don't even remember what the circumstances were, but somebody found out. And it was a huge deal. It was the biggest scandal. The youth minister who, like, there's a thing... In the South, at, at college, you know what Young Life is. Of course. Do you know what Reformed University Fellowship is? No. Okay, well, it's basically the college version of Young Life. Okay. So the leader, this guy Jeffrey Lancaster, like, you know, was leading this this group. And when the rumors were flying around about, you know, me being gay and my girlfriend and all this, and we were both involved in the ministry. I mean, you know, we play guitar at the meetings. And mm-hmm. again, it's like what the thing that everyone was doing, you know, so we did it too. Yeah. And anyway, he came to me and was like, I need to know what's going on. It was just really invasive and, and very unhuman. And, you know, he, uh, we were told we couldn't come to the meetings anymore. We could come to the meetings, but we couldn't be involved. We couldn't play guitar and all this. Okay. And it was just really gross and, and just kind of a clusterfuck. And it was just, you know, again, it, it was very, it was very just sterile and very like the letter of the law. It was yeah. just not about us. You know, I'm like, we're the same people. We're, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Like, why are you talking to me this way? You know, it was just very, like, disconnected from me being a human being and him being a human being and there being beating hearts yeah. in bodies, yeah. feeling things. Empathy just goes out the window yeah. when it comes to certain things that are taboo like that. Even yeah. in, though they say that all sin is the same, you yeah. know, in that doctrine. Well, I mean, like certain sins are like if you hit somebody with your car and they're dead, it, but if you gave them an orgasm and you have the same kind of genitalia, I mean, right. yeah, that that's far more of a sense. So it's there. There's these weird taboos that, especially sexuality, because you know, not necessarily even all Christendom, all Christianity. Right. It's American Christianity. It's specifically the South too, because we're we're puritanical. Right. We, we go back to that kind of a thing, and sex is way taboo. You know. Well, and it's very. Um, it's not progressive. Like it's yeah. not forward moving. It's yeah. you know, sexuality is such a fluid concept Mm -hmm. to me as an adult i'm just like oh my god like you know who i mean sexuality especially if you really start to explore your own feelings and you get to know yourself and you start to think about sexuality as like a a bigger picture thing and not just a vagina and a penis or whatever Mm -hmm. you know boobs it's you know (laughs) if you start thinking about it in more of a a worldly sort of from a worldly perspective, it's a very fluid concept, mm-hmm. you know, and in the South, you know, it's, I mean, I don't know, my upbringing was just so sheltered, mm-hmm. you know, it was so, uh, 
Well, preconception, it, like, yeah, a lot of that comes from the South. Well, I was watching the Dead Poet Society before I came over here. Yeah. And it's, you know, the whole premise of, of that movie with Mr. Keating teaching them to think for themselves. Yeah. And just even within that school, and it's sort of, you know, just the tradition and the rigidity of, yeah. of that whole movie. I mean, you know, the school and the movie. It's like, Yeah, the scene where they're all walking around the yeah. courtyard and then all well, moving and into... Well, you know, and then the kid kills himself. Neil kills himself because his dad was so controlling. And then you've got them blaming the teacher. And it's like... I don't know. It's there was a similar thing, like where I'm from. You know, just people. So and so had to go. You know, everybody had to go to rehab because they took a couple drinks. Like so and so's in rehab. You know, I mean, I, we knew so many people at my school who got sent to rehab, and it was just really? always like, oh, rehab. Okay, you know, I don't yeah. know. Well, it's I a think funny that, thing. I think that a lot of people can actually have these, you know, certain cracks in those sort of things. When you plug something up so much, and you deny it so much, and you push it away so much, or you deny that it is even there, it's going to abscess. It's going to balloon up, and it's going to... It becomes a bigger deal than it actually is. Absolutely. It's like you shine the light on it, and, you know, you just say, okay, it's me, that's it. Nobody has anything to talk about. Yeah, and good allegory, that... that uh, I've got up on the wall, um, those who are listening, a tandem skydive certificate of me actually jumping out of a plane. I will tell you this. Wow. The fear of jumping. It is right there. Yeah, there it is. The fear of jumping out of that plane. From from an aircraft flying at 12,500 feet above Skylark Airport. A, yeah. a perfectly good airplane. I jumped out of it. The fear leading wow. up to that was way worse than the actual fear of leaping out. Right. Like but that, once you were free falling, you were probably, this is amazing. I'm going to do this. Give me a punch card. I'm <laughs> yeah. going to do it 12 times. Yeah. No, it's true, man. Fear is so powerful but yeah you know the thing the thing that we experienced and you know that I experienced at school with just my sexuality and all that stuff kind of coming to light you know there's a couple things I wanted to say about it one I hadn't even made up my mind I mean I didn't even know how I felt about anything that was going on Mm -hmm. I was just trying to see where the path was leading and what was supposed to be for me and you know experimenting and trying things out and following a lead where it was going you know because that's how I am you know and so I wanted to know, like, if this was real and what is this, you know? And uh, so I hadn't even decided what I had thought about myself or what was happening or what – I didn't even have a handle on on the the ultimate feeling around any of it. But, you know, but we were basically forced out into light about something that we weren't ready to be talking about or it owning up to or whatever that means – and, you know, so there was a lot of ostracizing that went on and that people stopped talking to us. And it was, it was a really, it was a really shitty situation. It hurt. It did. It hmm. hurt really bad. And it was, it humiliated me, uh, really badly. And I was confused and angry for a long time. And I carried that, I've carried that into my career, you know, the anger and the bitterness and the suspicion and the always being on the defensive so and so's looking at me funny mm-hmm. you know oh they're looking at me because I'm gay yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. i carried that around with me when probably 8 times out of 10 that wasn't the truth but that was the truth for me at the time mm-hmm. and you just that starts to you know it starts to fester and grow inside and yeah. it becomes real to you and you start to you know put that on other people and you bring it into your relationships and you bring it into your business and then then that's what it is. It's yeah. a big pile of shit, and yeah. that's what everybody smells when you come around. Mm-hmm. You know and what they, I mean? And, but they don't even—they don't even know they smell it. They just they're, they're, there's something off. About they just you. know they're not interested yeah. in it. So you you, know? you leave school, you tail between your legs after being completely humiliated. Well, my parents came and moved me out. They parents were freaked out. Really? That okay. dad came down there in my in his best friend's truck. Mm-hmm. People saw it happen. People were watching it happen. People they, were in the hallways as we were moving it out. Nobody oh, yeah. was talking to me. 
They skipped people you were up. apologizing to my dad. Like, I'm just really sorry you're having to go through that. I mean, it was a nightmare. Uh, apologizing to your dad. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, so I went home. I, and it's a blur, to be honest. A lot of the time, I don't even remember. There's so many holes in my memory around that time. Yeah. But I, but I lived with them, I think, for... I lived at my parents' house for several months, and I tried to commute mm-hmm. to and from school because I was like, nobody's going to run me out of town. You know, like, I'm going to go back to classes. But it was awful. Yeah. You know, it was just clear that that, that wasn't... I wasn't comfortable. It wasn't a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I think... I think in my parents' heart of hearts, I mean, they're wonderful people and they love me. I'm an only child. They love me more than anything. They've never turned their backs on me at any point. I mean, my parents have always been there for me, front row, front and center every time I've played a show. You know, I mean, they're wonderful parents. Um, I think when I look back on it now, I think they were scared and they wanted to try and protect me from the stuff people were saying and from the way that I was being treated at school yeah. because they were hearing things. And, you know, I think they really were trying to protect me, yeah. you know, but I, you went to a Baptist Christian school in the South. Yeah. I mean, that's like, well, it was a, it's, it was a supposedly evangelical, but it was really based more on that PCA Presbyterian, yeah. which I kind of see as like a legalistic fundamentalist. Yeah. And you can tell me if those terms are on point because you know more about the, you know? Well, the Presbyterians can they, <laughs> they can they can tow a pretty hard line. Uh, that, I mean, does legalism can... like does that make sense? The oh, fundamentalism yeah. like no. does that make sense? Believe me, like any any higher Christian education has got like a definitely smattering of that. Totally, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. So you know, that's basically kind of like um, a member of Al Qaeda trying to shop at a truck stop in the middle of Oklahoma. You know, it's just, well, yeah, it's the wrong. Sp- place to be that's right you know? the, let's just say it's the wrong place to be you should be at a bazaar like near al jazeera that's where you should <laughs> have be. you seen that movie argo argo, argo remember like, that shopping center that's there where you should be there you should be, you should you be hiding out with ben, ben hufleck <laughs> ben in hufleck. iran so so you you uh, tried to live with a couple months you finally just said this is not for me yeah i moved yeah. out i actually i had saved money playing gigs for yeah. that for those couple years leading up to college and when I was at Ole Miss in Oxford. And uh, I had saved like a couple thousand dollars from playing gigs. Mm-hmm. And um, so I used that to get an apartment. Where so, at? I, in Memphis. In Memphis. Yep. I lived at this apartment building called the Gilmore. It was so awesome. It used to be an old hotel. It, ha- it was it had eight floors. I lived on the top floor. Nice. Penthouse. Yeah. And, yeah. I'm in the penthouse. And uh, yeah, it was really cool. It was my first apartment. I loved it. I lived in Midtown and I worked across the street. I walked to work every day. Come on, where'd I you work? At, um, at a little record label called Ardent Records. Okay, it was a, ironically it was a Christian label, huh. but Ardent Records, Ardent, you know, recording studios have been around forever in mm-hmm. Memphis. I mean, they've had so many. I mean, gosh, I'm blanking out. Oh, oh uh, Big Star recorded there a ton back in the day, and wow. they've had. I mean, they've had all kinds of people. REM made a record there, I think. Um, Cracker made the Golden Age there, which oh, is such yeah. a beautiful record, and I think um, oh, what's that band? Uh, and where you go, I'll follow Gin you. Blossoms, yeah, man, I think they love made a those record guys. there. It's, anyway, you know it's famous. They yeah. Alex Chilton made records there. It's like yeah. been around a long time. It's very, uh, it's very famous and just sort of like hipsterish. Yeah, hipster culture. Yeah, it's like a cool thing. In what capacity were you working over there? Um, I was just a gopher. Like I was just doing whatever at the label. Just mm-hmm. you know, stupid odd job. I was still playing gigs and touring some and stuff and. But uh, but yeah, it was a, a nice little lily pad to have landed on, and mm-hmm. and um, you know, so I lived in Memphis for a couple of years, and then my friend Bradford Cobb, who you know, who manages Katy Perry and mm-hmm. Adam Lambert and the Go Go's, 
at the time, he was about to move out to L.A. to start uh, manage well to start working at the management firm, mm-hmm. Direct Management, who at the time was the, one of their biggest clients was the Counting Crows. Yeah, and the Counting Crows were hugely successful at that time, and so Bradford was moving out here to to work with those guys, and now he's a partner. But I, me and my girlfriend at the time, who all the hubbub had gone on with, um, she, we threw our stuff in the moving truck. We were like, we got to get out. We want to go to L.A. Let's go. Oh wow! And I was and I. At that time, I was about to be signed. I either had just signed with Geffen or I was about to sign with Geffen. I think I had signed a development deal with them. Okay. And so I was moving out. And so I knew people in L.A. anyway. So yeah. it's just like it made sense. It was a sense. perfect time to like, go let's do go. That. Yeah. yeah. Let's go. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And you got into L.A. Where did you live when you first got into L.A.? I lived on this street called Alta Vista, which uh-huh. is right in between. It's basically just a couple of streets west of La Brea in between Sunset and Fountain. Okay. It's right by that Saharan motel. Yeah. Which actually they've kind of, they've kind of, uh, you know, spruced brightened up. it up. But yeah. yeah, they've kind of spruced up the, but the, back the then, Saharan. It was. Yeah, that neighborhood wasn't great back then. I were to the danger zone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, La Brea, from La Brea East was still a little bit sketch. Yeah. 15 years ago there when uh-huh. I first moved. So, uh, but yeah, but you know, the Wendy's yeah. was across the street. There were many late night drive through Wendy's uh-huh. drive through nights. Yep. Thankfully. The, yeah. In and Out Burger is right across. The, well, it's really close to there, too. And the Cat and Fiddle, have you ever been there? Oh, many times, yeah. We used to go there a lot. We used to hang out at the Cat and Fiddle a lot. Mm hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's a and good spot. And the Coach and Horses. Coach and Horses. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of English pubs. A lot mm-hmm. of like, yeah, The Coach and Horses, I, I have uh, I have had many, uh, many Wendy's nights. After the Cochin Horse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Such a, it was such a good place. Uh, for a while, I lived with Carrie Brothers. Uh, and, oh, hell. Yeah, yeah, right was, there at, at Crescent Heights and Sunset? Yeah, right yeah. there on that thing. And that was just kind of like a That's just, that had to have been just debauchery oh, 24-7. It was that, but then also there's so much fast food around there, too. So it was yeah. like just McDonald's. Really, really testing the tensile strength of your pants. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine how much fun y'all must have had living in that house. Well, I was going through a bit of hell myself, so it was kind of like I was doing the yo-yo. So, yeah. you know, I was I, I I witnessed a lot of fun, I will say that. I okay. saw people having fun, people who knew how to have fun, but I was just way too <laughs> hyper-conscious of myself to even like be able to lean into anything. Good old Carrie Brothers, man. Good what a good brother. dude. He is a good egg, man. He is a good egg. So, you got out here, you had a development deal with Geffen, and you're thinking I, I signed the standard rich and famous contract. Oh, yeah. They're going to begin the ramp up to oh, my yeah. eventual Here's, success here it is I, everybody always told me i'd be famous and this is this i guess yeah man this is it yeah. you know so you so what what were your aspirations what did you want to did you have do you just had a general smattering of kind of like i just want to be one thousands of people and thousands of records well you know it's funny because i never had an idea of what i wanted i really didn't yeah. To me, it was just like, oh, well, this is the next thing. This mm-hmm. is the next thing that's supposed to happen. And, you know, like, I never really doubted that I would ever get a record deal. I never mm-hmm. doubted that because it's what I wanted. Yeah. You know, but beyond that, I hadn't really thought about what it would mean. Yeah. I guess, you know, I just thought it would mean whatever it meant. You know, like, I think, sure, in my mind, it was going to mean having money and playing for a lot of people and, you know, kind of jumping up the ranks. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I wasn't very specific about it, yeah. you know, and it's funny to look back at it now because I wasn't thinking about my career in the bigger picture. I never was, you know, whenever there would be a contract in front of me or opportunity, I would just sign it. Yeah. And I remember having reservations at times going, ah, I really should think about this. I'll just deal with it later. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I signed a big publishing deal. Uh, for more money than I'd ever seen at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a nightmare. I'm still, like, some of my records are still tied up in that publishing deal. It was mm-hmm. a terrible deal, but 
you know, when you're young and you think that's the first of a bajillion opportunities and mm-hmm. a bajillion dollars, you just do it. You yeah. figure you'll get out of it or somebody will, you'll pay your way out of it or somebody will get you out of it. It's not going to stand up. You know what I mean? Because yeah. because in most cases, money can get you out of a lot of things. In most cases, money and prestige and membership can get you out of a lot of stuff that you know the average person can't get out of. It's the golden rule. Whoever yeah. has the gold makes the rules, right? Well, that's-, that's true. And you know, when you have money and status to hire an attorney who knows so-and-so and you can afford to pay for it, then maybe I could have gotten out of that publishing mm-hmm. deal. You know, I mean, it's just it's funny to learn as you get older how – how all business works, mm-hmm. you know, it's very simple. Well, it seems interesting. To, it's very simple. It really it's is very simple. It's, it's all about who you know. Yeah, it's it's That's a river. It. It's 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 just like water it travels the path of least resistance. Yeah, That's the way it goes. You're not really thinking about your career. You're just sort of going like, listen, people will tell me what I need to do when I need to do it, and right. I'll just kind of keep on making songs and being the person in the spotlight. Right. Or I'm awesome, and it's going to work itself out. Mm-hmm. I'm awesome, so how's it not going to work itself out? I mean, really, to be honest, at the end of the day, it was like, I'm awesome. It's yeah. going to work out. So what were some of the early opportunities that presented themselves towards you? Um, well, I mean, I guess just the initial record deal probably. Mm -hmm. And I had access to, you know, it's like once I signed the record deal and there was hype around what I was doing, I was offered, you know, the pick of a lot of different booking agents that Mm -hmm. I could never get now, you know, because it's just not, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. But it was like, you know, the pick of the best booking agents, uh, the pick of the best PR people, Mm -hmm. you know, there was just money. There was access to things that you know, to, that my friends didn't have access to. It's a, it was another tier. Call up the president of the label and get tickets to whatever. Wow. Get, you know, I mean, yeah, I remember I met the Ladies World Cup soccer team. I happened to be in New York and I called the president of the label. Can you get me into the Dave Letterman show to meet those girls? Because they had used superhero um, in the montage leading up to the World Cup. Yeah. And he made a call and so I got backstage and I got to meet the girls who were on David Letterman. It's just things like that, you yeah. know, that like I got to do and, and phone, just things that were a phone call away at the time. Yeah. And, it, you know, it feels nice to be in that position. I mean, you know, it Naturally. does. Naturally. And it can kind of rest on your laurels in that position as well. I mean, I, I right. don't... I can't imagine what I would do in the in those positions. I do know whenever I've had a certain amount of leisure or like people doing things for me, I've leaned into it pretty well. Yeah. I mean, yeah well, and it was too like you know getting to open for people like a lot of opening slots yeah, presented you open to you for? when you're a new artist. Well, I mean, I gosh, I opened for. I mean, I've opened for Mary Chapin Carpenter. I've opened for Melissa Etheridge. I've opened for Cracker. I've opened for the Sundays on the the last American, the North American tour that they did mm-hmm. for three weeks. It was sold out. It was one of the first tours, tours I ever did. Wow. Um, I've opened for Steve Earle. I've opened for Santana. I've opened for fucking Pat Benatar. Wow. I've opened for, I mean, I've opened for a lot of my heroes and I've mm-hmm. opened for a lot of great people. You know, um, and I'm sure I'm leaving some out because I've done a lot of stuff and I've gotten to, but, you know, I did go through a period where I was opening for a lot of people and not really following up with my own headlining shows. That was something that we sort of missed out on. So that's a way that I did sort of rest on my laurels when Mm. I had a lot of things coming at me. It was just like, I would, you know, just go out and open and make the money and not have to really wait for the next call for the next opening slot. Exactly. And it, and for a while, that's how it was. Mm Mm-hmm. I di- you know I didn't really have to work very hard to have things coming across the doorstep. There's a strange thing in the in the artist's brain that you kind of have to you have these two different hemispheres that work at very different speeds. It's like patting your head and then rubbing your stomach in a metaphorical sense. <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways, you have to foster and really 
take care of that creativity in your head and you have to give it a width and breadth and downtime and up and down. But then there's also this other side of you that always has to be telegraphing ahead four or five different paces. Like if I said, I want to play a show. I'm not going to play a show next week. I'm not going to play any big show next week. I might jump on an open mic or something like that. But if I want to play a show, I have to think about earliest six weeks from now and that's with people that i know that i can get on the phone and actually call about them booking a tour and that kind of a thing you're always having to think ahead into the future six months ahead but but creativity is so immediate and so now how do you handle how do you handle the two of those things coming together having having to figure out simple basic stuff because in the diy culture it's awesome we can do it all ourselves the shitty thing is we have to do it all ourselves yeah so you half the time you're worried about is that the right cord going into the bridge and the other half of the time you're worried about going like i wonder if hotwire's got a good deal on a hotel in baltimore on my long drive on the east coast yeah and to be honest like that's why that's what i like going back to what i said in the beginning that's what i hate about the do it yourself i'm not i just don't want to do it i don't want to do it myself i've never wanted to do it myself i have no interest in doing it myself Uh i don't you know, I don't think an artist should do everything themselves. I don't think that's the greatest idea. Uh-huh. I don't love the culture that we live in right now where everything is so immediate and accessible where any hack can get online and do whatever the fuck and make money doing it. I just I think that takes the the mystery away. I think it takes the allure away. I think it takes the work out of it. I don't I don't appreciate it and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. That's just the truth. You I know, like I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And I don't like having to think about a tour. I don't like having to plan it myself. I don't like having to think about whether I need to post something on social media. I don't like having to think about any of that. If I never had to think about it again, I wouldn't lose one minute of sleep over it. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. You know, what I care about, like I said, is creating great art, creating great stuff. And it fills me up. It fills me up every single day. But what does not fill me up is trying to find the best price on a hotel in Buffalo. Yeah. No. Yeah, I understand. What doesn't fill me up is trying to figure out if I'm going to stay with friends in Chicago or am I just going to eat it on a hotel for a hundred bucks? Yeah. What kind of rental car am I going to get? Gosh, can I squeeze all my stuff into an economy or mm-hmm. a compact so I don't have to pay for a full size? Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, boring, mm-hmm. draining, soul sucking information. Yeah. Press on. Press please. on. Please. You know, so that's, that's the yeah. kind of thing. And that's the kind of thing that I'd never had to deal with before I was, you know, before we have been thrust into this DIY medium. Those Mm -hmm. are the things that I never had to do for myself. And let me just say that, you know, I don't want to sound like a bitter old lady. I mean, you know, I've grown so much and learned so much about myself and my business, and I wouldn't change that. I think that's a great – I've been empowered so much with Pledge Music and, you know, all of the things that I've done musically over the last several years – um, you know, I, I've been very empowered from meeting Josh Joplin and doing Among the Oak and Ash for a minute mm-hmm. and trying a couple other side project ideas or just collaborating musically with people. You know, that's been so empowering and rewarding. And, you know, the Pledge Music thing, like I said, was really empowering and, and rewarding doing a fan-funded record. And yeah. I've been so encouraged by people. And so that was something, I mean, that's a huge blessing. And that's been really, uh, I mean, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. But, you know, it is a lot of pressure to have to think about all of the think about your business by yourself and not have a project manager, you yeah. know, or a business partner to kind of bounce ideas off of and sometimes take the pressure off. That's that's um that's exhausting, Certainly. you know. And that's a lot to th- it's a lot to ask of of one person. I yeah. mean, you know, I just it really is. It it's uh, some people can do it, some people are born natural with a, an ability to be able to to do the both of them. 
there is also this concern about if if you're doing both of those things, um, how much are you taking away from your art by by being able to do those things? How much energy is going to other things? I I don't know. I'm I'm I personally am of the mind that there is that we're in the wild west mode right now. I know we don't like there's there's everything's churning. Like if you think about it this way, like in Elizabethan England, there were certain precepts and laws, and there was there were people. I mean, granted, it was you know still before the industrialization of the world, but there was there was structure to a certain respect, and then people all left there because they didn't like it for one reason or another. They were trying to avoid any number of things yeah. and they came over to America and then they just went out into the West and became the wild West. And so we're, we're kind of in a weird mm-hmm. wild West period between different structures. Yeah. And you know, obviously it's not sustainable with, with the amount of desire that's there. People always talk about, you know, needing more content, more content, put more content onto the web, put more content onto oh, the no. web. But I got to tell you that if I have to put <laughs> so much content on the like... web, my, yeah, my records aren't going to be near, like we're not going to get, well, we're not, we're not going to get like smile by Brian Wilson. Well, it's just like, labor over. well, yeah, we're, we're likely never going to get that again. What, where's the time to make the content to mm-hmm. put up on the, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't. I don't have a lot of time to like yeah. think about, you know, strategizing. I don't know. It's just. It, I just think it's challenging. I mean, I just don't have a lot of time to think about yeah. like how I'm going to strategize on Facebook. I just. I really don't. And I like I said. I, I got to be honest. That just does not interest me. Like yeah. connecting with fans interests me. Connecting with people that interests me. But trying to like be strategic about it. Like that's where I get stuck. Yeah. No, you, you know who's really good at it? Jay Nash. Yeah, he's really good at it. You hmm. know, I, I mean, he blows my mind because he does everything himself and he does it pretty well. Like he runs his own enterprise and he has a family. He has a kid and a wife. I don't understand how he does it, but he's really good at it. Like he's Jay a Nash really good. good example of someone who does it themselves and does it efficiently. And yeah. I don't understand how he does. He must not sleep ever. Yeah, that that that's probably true. But like, Jay Nash is one of those guys that. Uh, that every time I've been around him and we've interacted with other people, like when I've done a show with him or something mm-hmm. like that, he's been able to say the thing that everybody was thinking, but he just does not care. I don't know. Maybe he's just because he, he just, it, maybe it comes from being six foot two and like, yeah. be, you know, carrying the biggest stick in the room. You know? Yeah. No, he, listen, I mean, I, uh, I love that guy. He's yeah. a, he's like family to me and I've learned a lot. I mean, he's a really good businessman. I've learned yeah. a lot from him, you know? Um, and he's, he always comes up in my mind as, you know, because he because he and I have been friends since I was, I think we became friends when I was at the end of my relationship with Vanguard. Huh. So that was at the tail end of my label experience. And Jay was just starting to, you know, delve into music. Mm-hmm. And he's always done it himself. And it's just interesting. Like he, you know, because now it's like I really rely on my friends like Jay and like you and mm-hmm. people who haven't ever had a record, deal, like a traditional record deal, but have always made music and made things happen on their own. You know, I've, I've learned a lot yeah. from my friends who who have, you know, always been a part of this model, you know, and I'm good Lord. I mean, look at I need Franco must just be sitting back like eating ice cream in bed going hmm. been there, done that. I yeah. Mean, you know, I think about how ahead of the game she and her manager were, whoever it was who encouraged her to just step out on their own and uh, step out on her own and never really partner up with anyone. Like, you know, that worked out for her. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I would imagine she could still go play a theater tour and do pretty well. Yeah, you know? this is what I think. There are six coming up on seven billion people in the world, right? There is 
for as many people as there are, there are people like you. There are people who appreciate your worldview. And then you, there are certain people that you meet in your life where you go like, oh, you're a magnet to me. We're, we're connected. Yeah. Now, if you can find who you're magnetized towards, and people do this all the time, in the DIY structure, what they do is rather than shave off any of the edges or try to like, you know, find a universal appeal in one way, shape, or form, yeah. they try to find the truest portion of themselves that is the most honest. Yeah. That is the most honest without any veneer of fear or grousing jealousy or any of that other stuff that lays over the top of it. Coming from a good place of honesty, once you do that, once Ani DeFranco was able to figure out, like, that's what her voice was at right. that. Once, I mean, like, your friend Margaret Cho was able to yeah. figure out what that specific thing is, what you do with your fans. It's, just, it's, it's specific to going like, look, we ain't going to win everybody. We're not going to get the flyover states. But... We're going to be able to go. I'm going to be able to find these people, and they will be devoted. Well, and yeah, and you're right. It's. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I do think what people gravitate toward is authenticity, and mm-hmm. I think that's probably the heart. Well, sometimes I guess it's it's not always a general rule, but I do think people in the end, like you know, people really stick around for mm. authenticity. I do think that's true. Yeah. You know, and I think that's. I mean, I think that's the challenge. I think you hit the nail on the head. As an artist, I think it's it's challenging, and it's the the whole point is to find your own voice, and to just you know to own it and go with it, yeah. you know. And and when you find it, just put everything you have into it, you know. I mean, I um, I think that's the deal. Yeah. And to not apologize for it, you know. That's I think it's and you know I'm not I don't know what people will say if this makes it to the podcast, but I. You know, I feel like being a female, though, it's a little bit more challenging in terms of not apologizing. Oh, I would have to say so. You know, I think being a woman and the older I get, having been in the music industry for so long now, and the older I get, the more I realize, man, you know, like being a white guy is pretty much the best thing you could be born into. Oh, man. Being listen, a white dude. It's, it's like Louis C.K. says. Best like thing if, you can... If they would change it every year, if like, like if I had an opportunity to re-up, this is a Louis C.K. bit. Yeah. If I had an opportunity to re-up, it's like, oh, yes, no, I'll take white again. That'd yeah. be great. White male. I'll take male. white male again. I, yeah. I, I say it's the genetic lottery. I mean, listen. Yeah. like Pretty much could, nobody's ever going to question anything you say if you're a white guy. That's true. Well, think of the problem with, with going back to what, you know, having to watch what you say as a woman is it's too quick in this culture that people say, oh, bitch. Or like, like what, yeah, what, what, you know, she on the rag or whatever. Any of those mm-hmm. tropes are. It's like, personally, I've never, I grew up with strong-minded women. Yeah. I grew up surrounded by strong-minded women, so much to the point where I didn't feel like I could actually express myself emotionally up until six or seven months ago because of therapy, you know, but, <laughs> but, mm. but God, being involved. therapy, man. Oh, yeah. You gotta love it. Oh my gosh. It's like a colonic for your brain. Oh my God. And your soul. I, I, I tell you, I've had the best time. On my ride home from my therapy sessions, you just—it's just nice to feel validated every oh, now yeah. and then oh, by yeah. by an outside party. Yeah, that doesn't have any investment in it, and you know <laughs> nobody. You, yeah, they're yeah. not invested, but they just say nice things to you sometimes, and you're like, oh god, thank you. I just needed to hear that. <laughs> I know. Just wanted to hear it from somebody. Or they I just needed to pay you to the, say it to me. Exactly. Or they say the hard thing, but with a velvet glove. He's like, maybe you should do that, and you go like, I know, I know, you're so right. You're yeah. Right. I was suspicious of that, but you confirmed <laughs> it. Yeah, it's oh, so funny. So right now you're working on. Margaret Show's record. Yes. Are you, did you? Are you still going on that? Yep, we're making Margaret's record. I'm so excited. We just started recording last week. That's awesome. Uh, this oh no, this past week, Monday, 
yeah, this past week, Monday through Thursday, basically, we we got the basic tracks done, and we had, I think we got all the electric guitar stuff done. So, so you're we're producing gonna, this? Yeah. The whole thing. I, I worked yeah. on her last record. I did a uh, track of banjo uh, on the track that Ben Lee produced. It was with Fiona Apple. Oh, nice. Yeah, Fiona Apple singing with Margaret and then me playing banjo. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, I was yeah. so I'm excited to hear this. I'm like, excited, man. I, you know, it was funny. When she asked me to produce, I mean, the first thing I thought of is, well, I got to get somebody else to do it. I can't do it. Uh-huh. And then... I was like, you know what? You can and you are going to do it because she's asked you to do it. You know, she's not yeah. asked you to find a co-producer. She asked you to do it. And so, so yeah, so it's been a real encouragement to me to have her trust me and pick me. You know, I I think she's a really brilliant artist and I think this record's going to be really cool. Yeah. The songs are interesting and, you know, she's really talented. Being the producer, does it feel... You've produced before, but you've produced your own stuff. And yeah, so you had, I've never produced anybody else's record before. Yeah, what does it feel like? What are it's, the immediate impressions? It's very, uh, it's very empowering. Like uh, you know, everyone's asking me questions. Uh-huh. What do I think? What part should I play? I'm like, oh my god, please stop asking me questions. Uh-huh. You know, um, but it's, uh, it's been a really cool opportunity to trust myself, uh-huh. um, to trust the process. It's been a good opportunity to be able to hire my friends who've been really helpful with me and who who have produced songs and records for me for free mm-hmm. <laughs> or have been paid very little to play with me or to make music with me it's been a nice uh it's been a really um nice feeling to pay back a little bit yeah. to be able to hire them to come and and also just to know who uh, how to facilitate my ideas that you know I have such a talented pool of friends you know that I could put a kick-ass band together and do it in a great studio that has a great vibe with a great engineer. And, you know, it's, um, so it's been really fun. That's awesome. It's been really fun. And I, um, I don't know. I just feel like I'm learning a lot. Like I wanted, I, you know, I'm learning from everyone who's involved, you know, and I'm very open about the fact that I want to learn and grow. And, you know, like, I'm not afraid to ask somebody, am I doing okay? And, what would you do if you were in this situation? You know, I'm just trying to be very open. That's excellent. You know, so I'm enjoying it. It's really fun. And I'm so excited about the music. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. I mean, I was nervous going in just because, you know, she's a comedian and, you know, is she going to want to write funny songs? Like, what are people going to think? What are people going to be expecting of this record? What mm-hmm. will they be expecting? Um, and can I make her, like, am I going to be able to help her, help elevate her where she wants to be and where people are going to get it? And everyone's going to, it's going to be a great experience for everybody. Um, and now I know that, that we are all doing that and it's going to be great. But mm-hmm. I was nervous at first because I'm just like, you know, what, you know, Margaret's not a working musician. What's this going to be like? Mm-hmm. Can I do a good job? You know, um, but it's been really fun. Yeah. You know, it's it's really fun. And I think she's she's excited about it, which then kind of assuaged some of my fears because I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, good. She's She thinks I'm doing a good job. You yeah. know what I mean? So, like, then I, then that kind of calmed me down. That validation feeds everything else. And they're like, oh, of course, yes. Yeah, that's meant, well, I'm meant to do all that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want, I just, you know, Margaret's my friend too. And I just, I want everyone to give her a chance. I want everyone to, to give Margaret a chance and mm-hmm. to, to not, you know, prejudge her record or, you know, her music because she's a comedian. You know, like, yeah. I'm really sensitive to that, and I really want people to push play on this and have their hair blown back and be like, whoa, mm-hmm. this is so cool. This is not what I thought, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. So I'm real protective about that part because she's the most generous, uh, down-to-earth, gracious, just wonderful individuals. She's one of the most, you know, one of the best people I've ever met. She's so nice yeah. and so genuine and sweet. 
Um, and so I, you know, you want to do right by good people. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Are you thinking about doing more after this? I mean, you know, like if somebody were to ask me, there is, I mean, I do enjoy it. I yeah. mean, it's, in, I'm enjoying, like, it's nice for me to not, this isn't about me. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's about me trying to help somebody else feel great about what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and that to me feels really good. Like, that I get to help Margaret, you know, um, reach her goal and her vision or just, you know, have this experience that's great. Like, so many people have given that to me, and I get to do that for her. Yeah. It does some, It does sometimes feel great to be able to use your artistry without having your personal ego on the line. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. Because it can flourish a little bit more. You've yeah. got a little bit more elbow room to be able to actually find out who you really are, Yeah, which is a weird head trip. I know. Well, yeah. also just to... Uh, just to be a part of someone else's experience, you know, mm. it's it's cool to to do that. That's um, the reason why we sell thousands of tickets to sporting events and why you want to go see a concert as opposed to just sit and listen to the record at home. It's no, because you true. want to share in that experience. That's true. That's what, well, and know, I think it just it makes you. I think it it helps be, make you a more well rounded mm-hmm. person and yeah. more well rounded artist. You know, yeah. you learn how to, you know, just hone a different skill. I think mm-hmm. it's just helpful. Especially if we're DIYing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just cast that net and, you know, cast it a little wider. Mm-hmm. See what's out there. Uh, one other thing before we, we kind of wrap it up. I wanted to talk to you about how you stave off the bitterness. I know that you've dealt with a lot of bitterness. Like oh, I've yeah. dealt with bitterness. There's that, that that thing of like that feeling, I should be doing this. Or I should be here. People aren't giving me the chance or I haven't done this for myself. So I think I'm going to, you know, kick Or that person sucks. Yeah. Why is anyone giving them money to yeah. fulfill their career dreams? Yeah. Like, <laughs> cut them off. Yeah, that person of, fucking sucks. You're done. Don't serve them yeah, anymore. Yeah, like, what the fuck? Like, why are you... Ca- what? Why? Mm-hmm. How is this person succeeding? I don't so get it. So how have you... Have you I mean, you've, you've stayed in the game. There's There are people in your class of people that started right at the cusp of, of the old model shutting down and the new model coming up and said, well, I guess I'm going to have to teach English as a second language in Taiwan <laughs> or I'm going to have to go become a carpenter in Saskatchewan yeah. or any number of things, but you've just kind of kept on going. What has kept you going in the li- in the face of bitterness and what for people trying to get through it, for people trying to get through the darkest of the darkest night of their soul, Ugh. what has gotten you through the, those bitter nights late at night when you see people you know on television? Oh, yeah. People you have met. People I just got to tell you, there's yeah. been, I mean, there have been some nights where I've had to be talked off a ledge. Yeah. And, you know, which seems so ridiculous, like, in some in some ways. But when you're thinking about it in terms of what you feel like you deserve, mm-hmm. you know, it all depends on how you're looking at it, you know. And I appreciate this question so much. And I, you know, partially because we're such good friends and we've had this conversation and you know what I'm going to say. Uh-huh. But it's like, but also because I just appreciate you asking. Is it such a big part of my story? It's now, anyway, at this point. But, you know, the truth is for a long time I didn't, I wasn't handling that. Like, I wasn't staving off the bitterness. I became so bitter that I really became a toxic. I mean, I think I became toxic. I think in my career I lost out on opportunities. I know I did. I can tell you, I can give you a perfect example. There was a guy 
um, gosh, what was his name? Well, it doesn't matter. It's probably not nice to mention people's names anyway. But anyway, this guy was a booking agent, and he booked, like, I think he booked the Weepies at the time. Like, mm-hmm. this was years ago, and he was a big agent. And he had, like, at the time, the Weepies were doing really well. And I mean, I know they always do well, but this was, like, at the height of their That record that came success. out that kind of went hit. Yeah. yeah, and he was booking them. And um, my manager at the time sent him to see me play at this place in Santa Cruz. That club in Santa Cruz – and I can't remember the name of it, but it's it's a good place. But I, I used to play there uh, fairly often when I was touring a lot. And I was this was on my second record for Vanguard. Mm-hmm. And I was just at the end of my rope with everything. And I had not had a good experience at Vanguard. And this was particularly... I felt particularly betrayed because they basically released my record and then dropped me, which yeah. which my manager at the time had told me would happen. And it just it hurt my feelings so bad. Because at the end of the day, you're angry. Why? Because you're sad and hurt. And yeah. you can't, you, you just have no way to facilitate those feelings. Mm-hmm. So you just get pissed at people, you know? Yeah. At anybody who's around, really. But um, this guy, long and short, this guy came to the show and I was so mad that night. Something, had, the label had screwed something up and it, something didn't work out right. And I just started just kind of spewing about it on stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy, uh, I don't even think he. I don't even think he came and introduced himself to me. I can't remember. But anyway, the next day, uh, my manager called and said, "Yeah, well, good job. You know, your your attitude sucks so bad that you basically alienated this guy. Like he called him and said, look, she's really talented, and you know, there's no doubt about that. Like, yeah, in in theory, I'd love to work with her, but her attitude sucks. Yeah. So I don't want to be around that. Sorry. And I had another experience like that with an attorney in Nashville hmm. who my friend tried to hook me up with this guy and we went to lunch and I just remember I was so angry just you know you're just looking for somebody to advocate for you yeah. you just want somebody to say yes Garrison mm-hmm. you have been wronged and I'm going to go out there and avenge it I'm going to mm-hmm. make it all right for you which of course no one can do and it's nobody's job to do that and you you're better off if you do it yourself. Yeah. Find your way through yourself. So anyway, this guy went to lunch with this dude. Same thing. The next day, he told my friend. He was like, "Man, I just God in theory, like she, you know, she, I really would love to work with her because she's talented, but she's so bitter. I just I can't have that in my life. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, like I was told these two. I mean, I was told this from two separate people in two separate instances. But at the time, I just wasn't ready to hear it. Yeah. So anyway, I've always been a person who learns everything the hard way. And around the bend, I have come to realize myself that I first had to do the work myself. Like I've had to do the work, the spiritual work, to be humbled enough to understand that it's not good for me. Yeah. You know, like and when I think about Christianity and at the end of the day, when I think about Jesus and, and Christianity and, and what Jesus was really about, you know, For me, I'm starting to realize as I get older that, like, oh, it's not about going to heaven or hell. It's not about being branded with the scarlet letter. It's not about any of that stuff. From my perspective, what God is about is saying, you know, listen, I love you unconditionally. And it hurts me so much that you can't see what I see. Yeah. So I'm just going to love you until you can see what I see. That's what I feel like God is about. That's what spirituality is about to me. And so by the grace of God, I can sit here across from you. And by the grace of God, meaning by God's grace, but also through God's grace, meeting people like you, people like Justin Glasgow, you know, um, gosh, people like Bill Leffler, people like Adrian Gonzalez, just, Mm -hmm. you know, all of my friends and the music, the rescues, anybody I can think of. I mean, Omar Velasco, I mean, just all of my friends, you know, Austin Hooks, you know, just everyone that I've met and 
they have, you know, all of you guys have rallied around me and let me be me. And you've, you know, we have this really wonderful community of, of musicians and friends that, you know, this is who we are. And the reason I'm still here is because this is who I am. Mm-hmm. And nobody's going to tell me that I can't make music. And nobody's te- going to tell me that I can't succeed. That's part of it. And I think, like, the be- yeah, the best thing is that you don't need the validation right. of the powers that be. But you got to get – but I'm still getting to that place. Yeah. Like, there is still a part of me that needs that validation. But I'm starting to understand mm-hmm. that – that's not about someone else. That's about me. Mm-hmm. You know, and the more I accept myself and love myself, and the more I realize that I don't need, I don't need all these external things that I think I need in order to shine in the way that I can shine. Yeah. You know, the more I start to realize and accept that, the happier I am in my life, and the less I even need those training wheels. Yeah. That, that we don't even really need them. Yeah, you're imbued. You're imbued with yeah. everything that you need to express yourself in the most beautiful of ways. It's trying to get back to that that we've from all the yeah all the all the the isms and schisms that have been thrown upon us and and the damaging things that happen as kids. You know, like the, the, I think some of the most pure art comes from the most childlike of minds. Well, and it's about getting back to that, and it's about collaborating too. Oh, it's yeah. like you know, I mean, it, again, when I moved to L.A., I happened to luck into this wonderful community of musicians. Like the the next of things people say about LA they just don't resonate with me because mm-hmm. you know I just haven't experienced that here I've I mean I was welcomed and and met awesome people from the very moment I set foot on the sand in LA and so you know I really think that you know I, I think that's another part of the reason why I'm in a good place is because I have good people in my life it's not just you know I mean I've done the work because I have good people around me who are good examples and good encouragers. And I have a reason to want to flourish because I want to be, I want to rise to the level of goodness that's around me. Iron sharpens iron. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, yeah. That's good. I I feel really hopeful for for what's going to come out. I can't wait to hear the Margaret record. I can't wait to hear more stuff. And you know what? Side note. We need to finish that song and then write another one. Oh, that's right. We yeah. still haven't finished our song. Yeah, we got to. I have thoughts on that, by the way. We okay. can talk about it afterwards. But I um. But yeah, thank you so much for including me. I'm so excited. I can't wait to promote the crap out of Shark Brain. Well, I think you're really gonna. I mean, I don't know how many viewers you'll or listeners you'll get from it, but I will promote the crap out of it. I tell well, you we're just happy to have you on the Shark in the Shark Brain Laboratories. Dude, this, I gotta say, good work on the Shark Brain Labs. Yeah. It's it's a nice uh, it's a nice vibe in here. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, because most of you don't know, there's just a lot of books. And guitars. Don't don't tell them. Okay, no. Tell them what's in there's there. There's beakers, and then there's there's. I like to for people to, who are listening to think about us being in beakers laboratory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We have a lab, we have lab coats on, and there's a bunch of like electrodes going off in the background, and a little despicable me is running around everywhere getting the work done. Exactly, exactly. Well, perfect. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. How about that? I love that lady. I've had conversations with Garrison like that since pretty much when I first met her. She's an open book and a warm heart and a fighter. I love that about her. Thank you so much for listening. You can go to sharkbrainpodcast.com for all the episodes or jakenewton.com for tour dates, various different other news and funny things that I like to do via the internet. Send requests for other people that we can interview. Maybe click on the donate button. I'm working on Shark Brain merch. I'll let you know when that uh, starts to formulate. For now, lean into the crisp air that is the harbinger of fall. Love your friends, seek the truth, and be well. <laughs>